Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unbinding love. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in time of trouble. Psst. Psst. What? What is it? Can't it wait? If you haven't noticed, we're right in the middle of scripture reading. Well, I was just wondering if you think it's really true, you know, all this stuff about the love of the Lord, his love endures forever. Do you think God is really that good? Do you think it's smart to ask that question here, now? You know, we always hear people read these texts, but I wonder if they really believe them, you know. Maybe they aren't sure if God's a refuge or if he's just part of the trouble. Do you even know what a refuge is? Yeah, duh. It means God's the safe one. There's trouble, and then there's a safe place. God's the safe part of the equation. Not bad, little brother. Now can you please be quiet? Do you think God is really all that? Or do you think he's more like that neighbor we had when we were little, old man Johnson? Remember when we lost our baseball in his yard and you were afraid to go get it? I was not afraid. And you were. If you would have caught that ball, there would have been no problem with that scary old guy. Remember when I got to the top of the fence and I looked over and there were all those baseballs and footballs and frisbees on his porch? Everybody said, once it gets into old man Johnson's yard, you will never get it back. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't like kids to have fun. He likes them to be afraid. He likes to chase them out of his yard so everybody thinks he has power to keep kids in line. That's what makes him scary. Hmm. So, do you think God is the safe part of the equation? Or is he more like old man Johnson? You never get your baseball back from a guy like that. He might not even survive his backyard. Hey, not fair. That was my question to begin with. But do you see my point? Some people might not see God as enduring love, but they might see him as old man Johnson. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. May your unfailing love rest among us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Thank you, readers. Uh, I just have to pause and thank you, church, for your appreciation that you showed this morning to your pastoral staff. If Hallmark cards would announce a church appreciation Sabbath, we would call you up front and do the same. We promise. Every Tuesday when we sit in this room and we pray for you, it, it is always the case that we say we are so grateful we're at Calamesa. Out of all the churches we could be at to be here, there are churches where they really do eat their pastors for lunch. So if you're doing that, thank you for doing it quietly, because 
We just don't even know. And we love you. And by the way, this is Pastor Dustin's first Pastor Appreciation Month ever in his whole life where he was the pastor. He, we discovered this week on Tuesday when we were spending time together, he said he's been going around telling people, excuse me, did you know it's Pastoral Appreciation Month? And I said, Dustin, guy, you can't, you can't say that to people. He said, but it's my first. So if you were going to give us any more gifts, you know, send them all to Dustin. Would you do that? And as I told him earlier today, I, somebody put a bag of candy bars on my desk anonymously, so I'm sharing because it's your first. So what do you think? A little more like old man Johnson or a little more like the safe part of the equation? What is it? Which is God to you? A little more like old man Johnson, you might not get your baseball back. He surely might not survive his backyard. Or more like the safe side of the equation. Last week we started the conversation, who is our God? We, we really should know something about that before we announce a whole lot else to the world as Christians. Who's God? And we also reminded ourselves last week, it, it's not so easy to know the answer. Because there is a conspiracy happening. Since the beginning of time, we read about it in Genesis and Job and Revelation. The one called Lucifer, Satan, has been very busy, busy in an identity theft. That is, exploiting the identity and the character of God for his own selfish person. Trying to persuade us that God is not what God claims to be. God is not trustable. Is Satan saying to you and I throughout the scriptures, watch your back, God is not what God says. God can't be trusted. In fact, God might even be holding you down, holding you back. You better be careful with that God. He's probably a little more like old man Johnson. It's an identity theft woven through your Bible, through my Bible. So one of the ways to get at the conversation, who is God, we take one of our solutions from the Bible itself. John chapter 14, we read the text last week when Jesus says, but if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. When we look at Jesus, we see God. So we'll spend seven weeks doing that. When we look at Jesus, what does it teach us about the God? We know. I invite you to take a Bible, would you, and open to Matthew chapter 4. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized, after Jesus enters the world and is baptized, but before his first miracle, before his first parable, even before that Sermon on the Mountain, He meets someone in the wilderness, the devil, and the devil tempts him. The devil says to him, here, if you're who you say you are, if you are really who you say you are, you see the identity theft beginning already in the the beginning of Matthew's gospel. If If you're who you say you are, just take these stones and turn them into bread. Prove it. Jesus doesn't bite. If you're who you say you are, Jesus, then go to the edge of the cliff, throw yourself off. The angels will come and catch you. Prove it. Jesus doesn't bite. So finally the devil says, fine, just bow down at me. Worship me and then I'll give you all the cities you can see down below. And we'll have this whole thing settled. Jesus doesn't bite. Not once, but three times. Not once, but three times Jesus could settle the question. Not once, but any, any one of those questions he could have proved beyond a doubt who God is. Could have unleashed anything on Satan. Could have settled it all. He could have asked for it to, to, be passed, to be passed over. God, just let me out of this now. I was wrong. I really didn't want to come down here and help you out. Three chances Jesus has to set the devil straight. As my father would say, kick him into next week. And he doesn't bite. 
But instead, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus says, Away from me, Satan. Get away from me. Now, where is a little godly initiative when you need it? Where is the godly initiative from the Old Testament? Wouldn't this be a great time for godly guts to show up? You know, the kind of godly initiative that sends serpents out to bite people and and sends the earthquakes to swallow people and sends a flood to wipe people away and a fire to burn them up. Where's a little godly initiative? Certainly the devil deserves it. Of all people. Now would be the time. Come on, Jesus, prove who you are. A little Old Testament God would be very helpful right now. It's a wonderful way to set up the story in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's the hero at the very beginning. And like all good heroes, we get a chance to see what's this guy really made of. Let him flex his muscles at the beginning of the story. Jumps out in a costume. We get a little taste. And then the story continues. He takes his fall. and he It's a great time for Jesus to just say, who God is. Just lay it out on the table. And instead he says, get away, Satan. Get away. Could have done anything he wanted right there. Remember, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen who? The Father. Jesus could have done anything right now, but he says, get behind me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 23 describes what it looks like. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain and demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds, crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across from Judea, they followed him. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen who? The Father. And it continues. You skip ahead to chapter 10 and verse 1. Much happens in these intervening chapters, but now Jesus turns to the 12 in chapter 10 and verse 1, and he says to the 12, He called the twelve to him, and he gave authority to them to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. In other words, he gave them authority to do exactly what he was already doing. Come, the twelve of you, do what you see me doing. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Matthew 11, verse 5, John the Baptist is in jail. He's a little worried. Is this what I'm, where I'm supposed to be? He sends a message to Jesus. Is there someone else coming to get me out of here? Or are you really the one? It's not looking so good. And Jesus sends word back, a report of what's been happening in the region. Chapter 11, verse 5. Go tell, John the Baptist, the Bible says. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. So if you've seen Jesus do these things, you are seeing the Father. When you see Jesus behave this way, this is what is called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the agenda of God, I like to say, the purposes of God, the will of God. If you see Jesus behave this way, we know a little bit more now about God. Because when we see Jesus, we see God. We see now the kingdom of God in motion. Matthew 11 now summarizes verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist... 
until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. It's been forcefully advancing the kingdom, Jesus, God. Only it seems now that it's a different kind of initiative. It's a different kind of forceful. It's something other than what we see from that Old Testament God who I said earlier, why doesn't that God just show up? When you see Jesus moving in the New Testament, part of our problem, I believe, is that it is so consistently different than what we see from the God of the Old Testament. It's so consistently different that it's confusing for us and it's alarming to us. The Jesus of the New Testament doesn't look a whole lot like the Jesus of of the God of the Old Testament. And we're not sure what to do with that and it sometimes contributes to our problem of answering the question, who is our God? And the critique comes very quickly for Christianity. You all, you go to the New Testament to study Jesus because you just like him better. He's just easier to get your hands around. He's, he's more comfortable for you. He, he, he looks a little bit like you. That's the critique that comes. You don't know what to do with that one in the Old Testament. So you adapt the one in the New. Make him fit your world. When the girls were fourth, fifth grade, somewhere around in there, we brought a puppy home. We purchased a pet. Mom lost that decision. A pet came to join the house, and as what most little girls do, when they bring anything alive into the house, they start dressing it. And so they put clothes on the dog. And before you know it, she's sitting on the bed with a little bonnet on her head. Cleopatra is her name. These are Sharpays, the ones you've heard my husband say are so cute, so ugly that they're cute. Only she just is ugly. (laughs) She never got all wrinkly. Doesn't matter how many clothes the girls put on her, and they tried anything that would fit on the dog. The more they try to make her like a doll or another little baby in the house, they can't do it. She'll always be canine, no matter how they dress her. And that's the accusation for us with God. You just, you, you put clothes and you, you adapt and you change that Old Testament God and you, you clean him up and, and you look over to Jesus and you see someone a little more dressed like you and, and you like that and you calm down and you have something you can work with now. It is not the reason we move to Jesus in the New Testament. We move to Jesus in the New Testament because the Bible says so many ways and so many places. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen who? The Father. This is why we move to the New Testament because we're looking for the fullest expression of God. And when we see it, then we can look back and read the New Testament again carefully digging deeper, trying to understand more. We don't get to cut that part of our Bibles out. But I am persuaded when we read about the Old Testament God and we understand Old Testament time, Old Testament place, Old Testament people, Old Testament locations, Old Testament deities, and then this new kind of God who shows up. We see why it's just baby steps in the Old Testament. And I have been persuaded by Alden Thompson in the Old Testament, it's not so much a violent God, but a violent people. I would say a violent people trying to learn about a new kind of God. Doesn't solve all the answers, by the way. 
There'll probably be tension there until we're in another kingdom. If you haven't read for a while or you've never read Alden Thompson's Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God, you can get it easily now. It's re-released online. I think you should read it. Start working on the Old Testament God. But remember, we can never stay there. You've got to move to the New Testament because we're told over and over that is the fullest expression of God. So we move to Jesus for that reason. When we see Jesus, we see God and all of that forceful agenda that's advancing that we read about. All of what we see there can be summarized in one word, really, love. You can call it goodness, totally good, totally perfect love. You can call it any of those things, but it really is a distinct, unique God word, agape love, others-centered, self-sacrificing, non-violent, I would say, restorative love. Love is such an inexact word for you and I, and it's such a precise word for God. Love. Max Lucado says it as easy as anyone else. I woke up this morning, I said, I love you to my wife. And I also turned to the peanut butter jar and said, I love you. I love peanut butter and I love my wife. But I have never proposed to a jar of peanut butter, he says. Such an inexact word for us, but such a specific word for God. The agape love of God, others-centered, restorative, nonviolent, perfect Good love. As we build our conversation about who our God is, this is the first block I would pull in. God is love. You could say God is good. I would accept that. God is agape love. That's why the Bible says, for God so loved in John 3.16. That is the new agenda now, this forceful thing that's happening in the gospel of Matthew that looks so very different. Agape love coming out of Jesus. We begin to move now quickly into the field of philosophy of religion. It either puts you to sleep or it crosses your eyes. You can take your pick. When we start talking about our, the words we're using and we analyze how are we going to talk about our God and how will we say it, if we say he's all-powerful, what does that mean? If we say he's all-love, what does that mean? If we say he's totally perfect being, what does that mean? If he's outside of time and space boundaries, what does, exactly does that mean? If we say he's unchanging and he's unchangeable by us, what exactly does that mean? And how many of these can we have at the same time? And do they all sit together and build a nice little pyramid and and make sense? Are they consistent and coherent and are they logical and do they contradict? And, And here, I believe, is where Adventist Christians and all Christians start to get into trouble when we try to understand who God is. Philosophy of religion. Now, I'll confess to you. When I went back to college, I was about 30 ish, you know, and I landed in a philosophy of religion class over at La Sierra. I tell you what, my little 30-year-old brain was so hurting. Taking Greek, philosophy of religion, Christian history. We're raising these two girls and reading this textbook. I will never forget the name of the textbook, Reasons and the Contour of Faith. I thought, who names a book that? You know, who na- how's that a title of a book? Started reading the book and your brain just aches. And I remember the day a person came to the class to lecture and I realized the person who's going to lecture is the person from the book. It's the same guy. 
And I realized about the time he walked into the room and he stood in front of my desk and introduced himself and said, hello, I'm Rick Rice. And the wise thing that came out of my mouth, you'll be so proud of me, he said, you're the guy from the book. (laughs) I'll get back to you about your book. I said that, I'll get back to you, which means I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I'll have to get back to you on your book. Your brain is wired in a way my brain is not wired. I'm not sure how you do this, this careful dissecting of language and these theological ideas and these philosophical ideas. It either puts people to sleep or it confuses us. But the Bible says love God with all your mind, friends. We've got to be able to talk about our God and understand our God and have a God that makes sense. So the first block I'm choosing for our God is all love, all good, which means whatever else we choose along the way in the next few weeks, it will have to bend or bow to love. Love will never be eclipsed. Love will never be overshadowed. Love will never be minimized now in the conversation because I'm giving priority to the agape love of God, the other-centered, non-violent, always restorative perfect love of God. Do you follow? Which is then to say, it follows, what makes God God must not be God's power. What makes God God must not be God's outside of time and space. It's not that God is God because he he knows everything. It's not that God is God because he's unchangeable. God is God because of agape love. First and foremost, It's the building block I'm going to choose and put in place. Do I do that on my own choosing? No. If I've seen Jesus, I've seen who? The Father. I have seen a kind of initiative in Jesus that doesn't make sense other than agape love. It's a kingdom of a different kind. So I put that one in place with you this morning. I tell you it's a non-negotiable for me as I study the Bible. And you'll have to make your own choices But I'll bet you what we'll find out is that we've sort of treated God like a conveyor belt of options. Well, I want him to be all-powerful, and I want him to have all foreknowledge, and I want this, and I want that attribute. And what's cranked out on the other end doesn't sit nicely together. Something has to give. You'll have to make your own decision over the weeks. The non-negotiable for me is love. God is all love, all good, all the time. If it doesn't look like it to me, then there must be another answer. The answer can never come back. God's just not all good. Sometimes he chooses not to be good. That won't ever be able to be an answer for me now in the next seven weeks. Your building blocks, I don't know what they're going to look like. Watch Jesus. Watch the Father. Watch Jesus and see what does God look like to you. I believe from the very beginning what Satan has been saying to you and I is, but really God can't be all that good. And so that's part of the identity theft. And we get sucked in believing that the one that created us, the one we're birthed from, really couldn't have all love, all good, all the time in mind for you and I. And we cause We cause doubt. We cast doubt. Instead of questioning principalities and powers that are all around the world, the doubt is thrown back to God. You really can't be all good, can you? And our struggle becomes with our own God. 
instead of with the devil and with principalities. Identity theft will do that. It will call question on a good God, a God who is good all the time. It is interesting in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. He teaches them the words we know well. This is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, <clears throat> hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You just pause. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will on earth as it is below, as above down below, is a way of saying it. Thy will, which is the character of God, now we know at least it's all good. Will, meaning that which God is pleasures or desires for us, which is good. We now know that's God's character. That's how God acts. So the will of God means goodness for you and I. Thy will that's up above, as above, down below, means make it happen now. Eugene Peterson says, make it now. Make it right now on earth. Make heaven reflect earth now. That's the will of God. And when we pray that prayer, when Jesus has taught the disciples to pray that prayer confidently, they don't even know. They haven't even seen this initiative yet. They haven't even seen what agape love looks like. They haven't even heard the Bible text. It's your Father's good will that you should have the kingdom. It's your, God, your Father's pleasure that not one of you should perish for God so loved. The disciples don't even have an idea about this concept, but Jesus teaches them to pray confidently as above, sound down below. It is all good news coming from God. So it is all around the union, Karen told you, Karen Martell, when she prayed this morning. We have Adventist Christians praying in five states this weekend. And by the way, if you didn't know, Karen is the union prayer coordinator. She's organized this for these five states. It's an amazing task. We have all these Christians praying around the five states for the will of the Father to be seen as above, so below. And sometimes when we pray, rather than praying what Jesus taught, we pray, well, we'd like this and we'd like, like that, and here's our petitions, if it be your will, God. We, we use the line, thy will be done, as, as a retreat, as a little caveat, a way out in case it doesn't turn out like we want it, in case it isn't all good in the end, in case the person isn't healed, the, in case the problem doesn't go away. Well, we can say, must not bend the will of God. We pray that way, you and I, sometimes. The will of God is our back outline. It's our retreat line. But did you see in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus does not teach it that way. When you pray, thy will be done, it's a confident affirmation of the character of God. Because the answer is good news all the time. Let it come now. Thy will be done as above, down below. When the disciples pray it, that's how they're taught to pray it, because Jesus knows it is God's good pleasure to bless them. Oh, I wish that we could be confident about that. I wish that it wasn't so challenging for us to understand how God blesses and why God blesses and who God blesses and what to do when it doesn't happen a lot of years ago, when we lived in a city far away from here, we met a gentleman in Sabbath school class. I will never forget his comments. He so irritated me. It can happen. He told us, he told the Sabbath school class, God has chose to bless me because God knows I can handle it. 
which isn't that far, by the way, from Old Testament theology, God blesses the good and curses the evil. God blesses me because God knows I can handle it in the way God's blessed me. He told us all, he's given me wealth, lots of it. Big house, fancy cars, lots of possessions in life, vacation homes. God knows he can trust me with it. God blesses me because I can handle it. And I remember thinking on the drive home, we were poor. We were very poor. Earned income tax credit, you know that line on the IRS forms? Well, we knew that line. I remember driving home thinking, but I can handle it, God, I promise. I prayed that prayer. I promise I can handle it. Just let us have a taste. You'll see. God blesses those who can handle it. That man, one year later, ended up in court fraud charges because God blesses those who can handle it. Oh, I wish that we weren't so confused about this. If the only thing comes from that prayer from Jesus, that we would learn to wrap our prayer confidently in the will of God. As above, down below. Let it be because we know that's good news. Confident, releasing, wrapping of our prayers in the will of God. They are safe, wrapped that way. If nothing else, that Adventist Christians could learn that. In the end, maybe our prayers should look a little different all the time. Anyhow, what if, instead of taking our list to God, because we know God is all good all the time, because we know that's the will of God all the time, what if for just a month you prayed the prayer, as above, down below? You know you're praying for the unleashing of God's goodwill. As above, down below. Let it happen, God. And where shall I be positioned for it to happen, God? As above, down below. Pray that prayer for a month. Put aside all the other petition lists. Just pray that prayer for a month and come back and tell me, how has your picture of God changed? How has your picture of God's goodness changed? How has your vision for the kingdom changed? In the end, maybe our prayers need to change. In confident expectation, the will of God is all good all the time. That's settled. Should sound maybe a little more like the prayer I overheard. Telephone. Actually, a little girl had the cell phone pressed to her ear in the store several weeks ago. Wandering around, she was so preoccupied with looking around with her little phone. Her mommy was way over there, and she was weaving in and out of the racks of clothes, and she must have got the answering machine because nobody was talking back, and she just went on and on. And I heard her say, Hello, Daddy. It's me checking on you sometime after school but before supper. Hello, Daddy. It's me checking on you. My day was fine, but I wanted to know, Daddy, how was your day? Because I just wanted to know. Well, stalls, waiting for Daddy to pick up. Well, just call me back later, Daddy, because I'm just checking on you. Wow, what if our prayers were a little more like that? God, it's me checking on you. How is it in your kingdom today? How is it with all that good will today? Could I 
help you with anything today? Hello, Daddy, it's me checking in on you. It is safe to pray prayers wrapped in the good will of God because we learn from Jesus. If you see in Jesus, you've seen the Father. And what we see in the Father is all good all the time. Amen. I'd like to just invite you to sing the final chorus from the first hymn that we sang this morning. Then sings my soul with me let's repeat those words from Jesus shall we the our father our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors Lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Go in peace.